And, uh, you know, I have always been a little fascinated by marketing. How the masses can be convinced that a certain product is a necessity to life. Like, some of us at this point wouldn't really know how to go on with life without our Apple iPhones, right? My 12-year-old son has been convinced that it would be an embarrassment to wear anything without the Nike swoosh on it. Like, it would literally bring shame upon his life. And that's just what good marketing does. You see, it convinces us that we need this in our life to have any decent life at all. And it's not normally the product that sells itself, it's the marketing. In fact, with great marketing, you know, you can even sell some pretty horrible products. <laughs> In fact, I began to wonder over this last week if I could find some examples of like some ridiculous products <laughs> that had sold for millions of dollars just as a result of the marketing. And with quick Google search, well, uh, there was no shortage of examples. So what I decided to do was just simply pick one from several decades, all right? Now, I will begin in the 70s, and I wasn't around at this point, so I can't really say that I remember this fad. Some of you might. Um, but apparently in the 70s, people in droves went out to buy pet rocks. Do you remember pet rocks? Are you kidding me? It's a rock. <clears throat> Listen, this has to be one of the greatest profit margins of all time on a product. <laughs> it is a rock that comes in a bed of straw. That's it. Now, with your pet rock, you also, um, it came with this training manual that would apparently... <clears throat> help you care for your pet rock. It would teach you to do some cool tricks, you know, like play dead or sit. <laughs> and uh, Time Magazine actually named the pet rock as one of the top 10 toy crazes of the 70s. Now that is some good marketing right there. <laughs> and in the 80s, after, you know, some time had passed, well, we would assume that such novelty items would become a little more technologically advanced, right? Um, but it would seem that developers really drew upon the past inspiration of the pet rock because in the 80s, we were then given the Chia Pet. <clears throat> All right. Now, would you please raise your hand if you have at any point owned a Chia Pet? Don't be shy. It's all right. It's okay to admit. It's in the past. Am I right? It's in the past. You know, the sheer number of sales of this thing over the years, I believe to be a little bit of an embarrassment to our society. <laughs> in fact, this thing was so well marketed that most of us can probably still all remember the little jingle at the end of every single commercial. Cha-cha-cha-chia. You remember? <laughs> and then, luckily in the 90s, we were given something just a little more practical to our lives. Because in the 90s, um, we were given the thigh master. <laughs> now, I won't ask for a raise of hands on this one because I don't, I don't want to embarrass the guys. All right? 
The Thighmaster has to be one of the simplest fitness products ever produced, but yet also one of the best selling of all time, the Thighmaster. Now, as we make our way into the 2000s, finally, we found something that would bring us lasting comfort and joy to our lives. For we were given the Snuggie. You know, so many people watched this infomercial and thought, finally, something to really enrich the quality of my life. See, I didn't realize how discontent I truly was when my blankets had no sleeves. That is just some good marketing. It creates in us this sense of need that wasn't there before. Oh, I didn't know that I needed that. But after watching that advertisement, well, I can see how I can't live without that. In fact, you know, we can see even how with really good marketing, it even tends to breed a lack of contentment in us. It's become actually a really big problem in America today. We're always sold the idea that to become truly satisfied, well, we just need to pursue or obtain one more thing. But of course, we buy it, or, or sometimes it's that we achieve it. And it may provide a little bump in happiness for a couple of days. But after a day or two, well, we feel just the same. In fact, we normally move on pretty quickly to pursuing the next thing that we hope to satisfy. And we tend to live our lives chasing this contentment because it always seems so elusive. And yet there is a guy in the Bible by the name of Paul who would say, you know what, we can finally stop chasing contentment and instead just always have it available to us. Take a look at what he says here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. If you got your Bibles open or you can read along with me on screen. He says, I have learned the secret to being content. Now, would you believe that? Wouldn't you be interested in knowing the secret to contentment if there ever were one? In fact, if you're here this morning, you can identify with sort of being in this state of chasing satisfaction. Can you imagine your life if you no longer felt like you ever had to fill that void, but instead you were just always in this state where joy and satisfaction, contentment was always available. And Paul says, it is. But let me first warn you that Paul's secret is a little unconventional because it doesn't involve more. You see, he will make no mention of more prosperity or more prestige or more power, which are all the things that we tend to anchor our contentment to. In fact, before getting into Paul's secret, let us first look at some of some more popular pathways to contentment. One of those pathways is, of course, prosperity. The feeling that in order to be satisfied, we just 
need to acquire more things. Contentment then comes from having more, we would believe. And before we just sort of dismiss this pathway of sort of like, you know, a worldly view of things, I would suggest that it is very prevalent as well. It's crept into the hearts and minds of many well-meaning people of faith. In fact, it's often even taught in churches and sometimes will even be called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that as our faith increases, well, the larger our bank accounts will get and the more and better things we will receive from God. It's the sort of thinking that we can kind of coerce God into handing over his blessings. And the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it treats God as a means to an end rather than the end goal itself. But yet that doesn't, of course, mean that God doesn't love giving us great blessings. In fact, the Bible even says that he takes great delight in giving good gifts to his children. It would be just like me as a father. You see, I love to give good gifts to my kids. I think that there is nothing more fun than watching your kid open up a good gift and just seeing the excitement light up their face. But you know, I, I would hate to think that my kids might begin loving me only because of the gifts that I would give them. You see, I, that's a pretty shallow relationship. I want them to love me just simply because I'm their father. And so the prosperity gospel values what we can get from God rather than just simply being in relationship with him. And by the way, I would say this also, that neither does God mean for us to pursue poverty. Now, that may sound strange to us because that isn't exactly the American way, but I would say that sometimes it can be a Christian way. Some Christians will even try to wear poverty as this sort of spiritual badge of honor. After all, they would say, Jesus was without anything. It could even be said, and rightfully so, that Jesus was even homeless himself. And so, as the rationale goes, well, since Jesus seemed to be poor, well, then I can become most like Jesus through poverty. But listen, that's like, like saying, well, certainly, you know, Jesus had an incredible beard in his day, right? And so I can become more like Jesus if I were to grow a righteous beard. <laughs> Some of you guys in here have never felt more closer to God than you do right now. <laughs> but then what does that say about someone like me who has been, not been blessed with such manliness to adorn my face. 
I mean, I wish I could be more like Jesus in that way and grow a great beard, but he, had, he just has not bestowed that blessing upon me. And that seems silly because we understand that when the Bible speaks of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus in reference to his character, for God is looking inside us not at our outward appearance or maybe the means by which we would live. See, God's goal is not that we would live in either prosperity or poverty. It's that our character is developed as we would grow closer and closer to him. Another popular pathway to contentment is through prestige. This is where we assume that we will be more content the more popular we become, the more well-known by others we are. Maybe it's even by the different titles that we may be able to earn. It becomes about status, whatever we assume those status symbols to be. And you know, the problem with status symbols is that they're always so relative because they're always based on comparison, aren't they? For example, there are so many things that I never knew I wanted until you had them. It's easier for us to feel content when we perceive ourselves to be on top, to have the higher status, but things can always shift so quickly. You see, I was perfectly happy with my position until I noticed that you got a better one. And having, you know, like ambition or drive, we could call it, is actually a really good thing. I would even consider it a very God-honoring thing. Where we get into trouble is when we tie our value to those things, thinking that we will feel better when we have better. It always gets us into trouble. It's never a good idea to base contentment on what other people think, which is what we will tend to do through prestige. Because think about this. This is kind of like an ironic thing. I will only ever find value through my status or accomplishments so long as you think it's a big deal. And if you were to stop thinking that it's a big deal, well, you know what? That would no longer be something that I would be interested in pursuing. I would just move on to finding value in a different status symbol. But God, as we'll see in just a moment, instead, he wants us to find our value in being known by him for his opinion and his feelings for us never waver. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it even has this statement there where it would say, God created you to be his masterpiece. That is the kind of value that God places on each one of us. Uh, another pathway to contentment that we will often take then is through power. 
where we, we seek this false sense of control. And I would say that it's false because if we were to really sit down and we were to think logically, idea of power, you know, it's really easy to reach the conclusion in a short amount of time that as human beings, we are pretty powerless over a great many things in this world, right? No matter our wealth, our position, no matter our fame. Pursuing power is closely related to achievement, but it also comes with this subtle view that it's within ourselves to become anyone or anything that we want to be, that we all have this inner power even to will something to happen. Quite a while back, LeBron James, he uh, retweeted this quote by the fighter, Conor McGregor. Maybe you saw this a while back. And uh, I'll read the quote. McGregor said this. He said, there's no talent here. This is hard work. This is an obsession. Talent does not exist. We're all equal as human beings. You could be anyone if you put in the time. You will reach the top. And that's that. So I'm not talented I'm obsessed. And LeBron James retweeted this saying that he was going to use this for motivation, for inspiration, because he thought it's such a true statement. And I can certainly appreciate the sentiment there expressed about hard work and dedication. In fact, LeBron James, man, he he is an incredible basketball player. And I would venture to guess that it is due in large part to his dedication, to training, and to practice. But you know what? I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb here <laughs> and say that I will never be a LeBron James. <laughs> there is no amount of work that I can put in that's going to get me to that level. Because you know what? No disrespect to King James, as he likes to be referred to. But I am pretty sure that his six foot eight, 250 pound physique, you know, it might have just a little bit to do <laughs> with where he's at today. You see, we don't have the power within ourselves to do anything or to be anyone we would like to be. And you know what? To perceive ourselves that way is really to deny our need for God. For we will begin to worship ourselves. I was thinking about it. You know, another way that um, sometimes we'll even do this is to believe that it's always a good idea to follow our heart. Have you ever gotten that advice from someone? Or maybe you were the one to give that sort of advice. (laughs) That's horrible advice. (laughs) I mean, how many people do you know followed their heart into disastrous situations? We could probably all here share a lot of stories among us just following our heart. And the idea behind such advice is that we all have it within ourselves or that it's all within our power to choose what's right for us. 
But that's to assume that the heart always points true north on its own. Oh, it does not. In fact, in Jeremiah 17, 9, I mean, it puts it pretty harshly and says, the human heart is deceitful. It cannot be trusted. Now it can be submitted to God and it can be molded by him. But when left on its own, oh, it will so often lead us astray from God's ideals. And so lasting contentment, it, it never gets achieved through power or prestige or prosperity or anything else that the world may advertise to us. And you know what? If that were the case, the Apostle Paul would have found it through such means, you know what, a long time ago. For if you were to reflect on Paul's life, you would see that he used to live very comfortably. Growing up with a pretty privileged family and background. But now, in the time of his writing this letter of Philippians, he's got no wealth. In fact, he's largely dependent on the financial support of others. He also used to be one of the most prestigious Jewish leaders there were. But since becoming a follower of Jesus, he is now hated by the same people that used to cheer for him. And whereas he used to have a great deal of power, you see, he was normally the one to be giving all the orders. Well, now, as he's writing this letter of Philippians, he actually finds himself captive in prison, writing from a jail cell. And yet despite losing his prosperity and his prestige and his power, he's got such great contentment that he would say, listen, lean in, because I have got a secret to share with you. This is what he says in Philippians 4.10. He says, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again for the Philippian people were trying to help him out, send some sort of gifts and stuff. He says, I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it was, is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Now, when Paul says that he knows what it's like to live in any situation, he's not lying. I mean, he had been through some incredibly trying ordeals up to this point. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it gives us a, a short list of some of his life events. He had been whipped five different times. He had been beaten with rods on three occasions. He had been stoned once, which isn't a reference to drug use. I mean, he actually... He actually was pelted and buried in rocks and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. Amazing. 
that he continued to get on the boats. Like, I don't know at what point you go, you know, I don't, sailing's just not really my thing. Like, I don't know at what point you get there. <laughs> Three times. And he says that he had routinely faced danger, hunger, and had gone cold. I mean, if there was anyone who, could, who would have been able to say, oh, you think you have it rough. I mean, it was Paul. And by the way, you know, the irony of, uh, of Paul's life hardships is that, you know, any prosperity preacher would have to have looked at Paul's life and said, Paul, <laughs> you know, you obviously just don't have enough faith. I mean, that's why all of these bad things have been happening. Oh, and I would have loved to have seen the apostles' reaction to that. It's an amazing thing that Paul would be able to say, oh, I have found contentment. Because in the world's standards, he should have been one of the most discontent people around. And so Paul obviously knows something that the rest of the world doesn't. And so listen to what he says. My guess is that you're probably familiar with this secret, even if you didn't first associate it with contentment. It's found in Philippians 4.13. Many of you may even know this verse. He says, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. It's the verse that we so often hear associated with victory, right? The Christian athletes step out on the field or court and it becomes their rally cry. We can win this game even against such improbable odds. Why? Because it's through Christ who gives us strength. Now, I always think it's a great thing to be reminded of a Bible verse. But you know, Paul wasn't really talking in terms of victory when he wrote that line. The verse isn't about winning or losing preferable outcomes or bad ones. Paul was talking about the ability to remain content no matter the external circumstances. You see, Paul's contentment was anchored to a relationship with Christ, which is the most stable things we can anchor our lives to. The world has always told us to pursue and value certain things, even to live certain ways. But Jesus introduced a different way to live that was completely foreign to us. It's a kind of life that's unaffected by time. It's unchanging, indestructible. And it has this stable quality to it where peace and contentment are always found. We can think of living this sort of life as we would live in our homes with thermostats. You know, the thermostat is really, if you think about it, a modern marvel. We can set it and stay at just the right temperature. Proper temperature may be continually debated by spouses for generations to come. 
You experience this, right? In the evenings, my wife is often huddled underneath a blanket, cold and resentful. (laughs) But regardless, we get to stay at a certain temperature, but that's inside. Of course, outside, we're subject to the swings of the weather. Sometimes it's unbearably hot. Other times the days are perfect and we hardly notice a difference between the inside and outside. Other days, it's miserably cold. That's just the nature we understand of the outside. And although those swings from, you know, perfect beauty to maybe stormy are always present on the outside, Jesus gives us this life inside, anchored to him that always makes contentment, joy, confidence available to us no matter the outside circumstances. It's why Paul would declare, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so if we want to experience the same kind of content life that Paul speaks of, we must determine this one question for ourselves. I'll only give you one this morning. Is Jesus enough? Now, that's like a bombshell of a question. So I don't know that I'd answer it too quickly. In fact, before you do, I want to take you to a story in Genesis chapter 22. This has got to be one of the craziest stories in all of the Bible. In the Bible, <laughs> it's got a lot of them, all right? But this one, I think, just like tops the charts. It's a story of a man named Abraham who was asked to give up what he treasured most, his son Isaac. And so if you've got your Bibles open, Genesis chapter 22, this is how the story begins. In verse 1, It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. And what will follow is one of the most gut-wrenching scenes in all of history. For Abraham, he will saddle up the donkeys. And he packed up some firewood, a a fire-starting kit, and a knife. And he then invited his teenage son, Isaac, on a nice father-son getaway. Oh, and if we were to watch this one play out on the big screen, I can imagine we'd be sitting there with our popcorn thinking to ourselves, don't do it, Isaac. Don't say yes. Don't do it. Oh, oh, he said yes, right? It's like, it's like a horror film. Every central character, they just sort of seem to walk right into things. And it's about a three-day journey to the mountain. And I can't imagine what must have been going through dad's mind at the time. Is God really gonna make me do this? 
what am I gonna say to my son? How am I gonna explain this to his mother? For all of us with children, this is a, it's nearly an impossible scenario to imagine. And near the end of the trip, Isaac obviously realized that this wasn't your ordinary camping trip. Maybe he could see the look of stress on his father's face. Or maybe he thought it odd that his dad would tell the servants that he didn't need him to carry his luggage on the last leg of the journey. For you see, Abraham at this point, I mean, he was a pretty old guy. Probably not in the kind of condition that you would normally see a backpacker on this mountain trail. And Isaac also astutely realized that they had come with the material for a fire, but that they hadn't had any animal to sacrifice. Now, when you're packing up before any sort of trip, of course, you're always bound to forget something. But Isaac thought, well, how in the world do you forget that? That's like going on a vacation to a ski resort and you forget your skis. I mean, it's kind of the most important thing to pack. And so in verse seven, you see him ask this. Isaac says, we have the fire and the wood, but there's no sheep for the burnt offering. Ah, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. Now, you know what? We don't know if he was just telling a bold-faced lie to Isaac there because what else do you say? <laughs> or maybe he actually believed that. We don't know. He had certainly been praying for that over the last few days. And when they finally reached the top of the mountain, Abraham then arranged the, the wood and he cleared out a spot in the middle there for the sacrifice. And then it tells us that he tied up his son, Isaac. Huh. Come on. Now, this is one of the places in the Bible that I, I so wish that we had more, right? Where we could go back and we could watch the director's cut, like the left out scenes, you know, that we could get the additional details. Because I know that this is a culture where respecting father was really important to the children. But you know what? I just find it really hard to believe that Isaac would allow himself to be tied up peacefully here. <laughs> so I really wonder how that went down. Did Abraham maybe have to, have to trick him in some way, make him think that you know, it was all part of a game that they were playing? We've all tried that with our younger kids, right? Or did things get physical? Like he had to wrestle him to the ground because listen, with a young teenager like that and a much older father, whew, I imagine that was quite a scuffle. And so we don't know exactly how they got there, but we do know how they ended up. It was with Isaac tied up, strapped down to the altar and his father with a raised knife to the chest. There's your movie poster. And by the way, I don't know how a parent-child relationship survives this. 
you think you have maybe a strained relationship with your teenager. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if there's any amount of counseling that helps Isaac here with his trust issues after this one. (laughs) That's gonna leave an emotional scar. For son, and remember this, also for dad, because don't miss what's going on here. If you were to, to rewind the tape, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. Old enough to be his granddad, even his great-grandfather, even. And so when Abraham reached down for the very first time and awkwardly scooped up this little baby boy, oh, he knew. This was a miracle. This was a divine gift from God and no other gift in his life would ever compare. And Isaac was in fact more than just a miraculous gift. You see, he was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. For God had made this promise long ago that one day Abraham would have a son whose bloodline would be eventually carried to the Messiah, whom all other nations would be blessed by. And he held on to that promise. And not only that, but did you notice in those verses that we read that the Bible even emphasizes that Isaac was a child whom Abraham loved deeply. It says, take Isaac, <laughs> whom you love so much. I mean, what a special bond that would have been between parent and child. And so it shocks us that God would say to Abraham, sacrifice your son to me. Why would God identify the thing that would bring us the greatest joy in life and then ask us to give it away. Can you imagine the conversation that Abraham would have had with God as he approached the mountain? God, Isaac is my life. I've invested everything in that boy. If I give him to you, what do I have left? Without Isaac, what remains of my life? To which God would answer, just me. Is that enough? Is God enough? Imagine if God asked you to give up the very thing that brought you the most joy in life, if in fact it has not been God. What if God were to ask you to sacrifice the very thing that you're pursuing to find contentment? And after giving up all such things with no promise like Abraham of ever receiving them back and all you had left was a relationship with God, would that be enough? Paul says, That's the secret. It's what God revealed to Abraham thousands of years ago, that contentment 
is truly found when we come to the understanding that God is enough. That our relationship with, through him with Jesus will always be our greatest source of satisfaction. This morning during communion, I want, you, I want to invite you to consider the question, where might I be pursuing contentment that is not God? And I would encourage you to, to speak honestly to God about that. And then take a cracker and a juice, which is symbolic of Jesus' sacrifice that he made for us all so that we can find true and lasting contentment through a relationship with him. I want to pray for us. I'll dismiss you to go and grab those elements from the communion table. You can go back to your seat. You can take those on your own. Have your moment with God. Speak to him about these things. We'll sing another song and then I'll wrap up with the blessing. I want to leave you with this uh, quote, though, before I pray. I really liked it from John Ortberg. I, I think it sums it up pretty well. He says, my main job is to live with deep contentment, joy, and confidence in my everyday experience of life with God. And everything else is job number two. Lord, God, we pray that, that you would allow us Maybe not to answer so quickly, but to wrestle with that question. Are you enough? Lord, may we pursue you with not a piece of our life, with not just a bit of it, but with all of it. May you be our true source of contentment and satisfaction. And so, Lord, now as we take some communion and we just simply reflect on the gift that made it all possible, relationship with you. Lord, would you examine our hearts as we would speak honestly with you. We ask that during this time you would, you would move, that your spirit would even have its way with us. In your name, amen.